The scripture reading this morning is Matthew 9, 1 to 8. Hear the word of the Lord. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that God would help us understand his word. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can meditate on your word. Please help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, A few years ago, I remember seeing an article titled, How One Stupid Tweet Can Ruin Your Life. It's a story about a woman named Justine Seiko who was about to get on a flight to Cape Town, Africa. And before she got on her flight, she thought, you know what, I'm going to fire off a funny tweet to my 170 followers that I have. And so she drafted a tweet that said, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Yeah, not good. Not good. Uh, She turned off her phone, and for the next 11 hours, ignorance was bliss, while her tweet went viral to millions and millions of people all over the world who saw the racism and the classism implicit in her tweet. There was millions of people shaming her, criticizing her. Uh, Her employer tweeted about her tweet while she was on the flight. She turned into a hashtag, has Justine Seiko landed yet? Uh, It was bad. By the time she got off that flight, she had incurred the public shaming of millions. She had lost her job. She had lost her friends and hurt her relationships and her family. All from one uh, stupid, wrong, and sinful tweet. Uh, Stories like that uh, uh, break my heart for them. uh, But it also reminds me that I have decisions that I make that I regret. I have sins that I commit. Don't we all, right? Like we all do stupid things. (laughs) We all say and do things that we shouldn't have done. We all uh, commit sins that we know that we should not have committed. And a question that that comes to my mind when I I think about my sin, I think about sins like this is, who, who forgives? Like there's shame, there's guilt, there's canceling, but, but who's the one who actually comes in and forgives when forgiveness is needed? Who's the one who absolves? Who is the authority on forgiveness? Well, in our passage this morning, I think what we see is that Jesus claims that he is the authority on forgiveness. Uh, Matthew 7 and 8 show us that Jesus has authority over the law. He has authority over healing. He has authority over discipleship. He has authority over the storms. He has authority over the demons. And then we get to this passage here in Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Don't let your Bible headings fool you. 
I think Matthew's keeping up with the same theme, and he's showing that Jesus has authority to forgive. And that's good news for you and I. (laughs) It means that he is the expert on forgiveness, and he can teach us how to find forgiveness when we sin. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see that Jesus teaches us that we need forgiveness. Jesus teaches us where we find forgiveness. And Jesus teaches us where we, how we receive forgiveness. That we need forgiveness, where we find forgiveness, and how we receive forgiveness. Kids, listen for a story about a man who goes in uh, thinking he's just got a fever and a sore arm, and he finds out he's got something much worse. All right? First thing we see is that Jesus teaches us that we need forgiveness, right? So Jesus is teaching, and uh, the room is full. Mark and Luke tell us the room is full. Nobody else can get in. But there is a paralytic who comes to the party with his friends, and he wants to get to Jesus. So what happens is they, they, him and his friends, they, they go to the roof. They carry him to the roof. They tear open a hole in the roof. They place him on this mat, or he's probably already on the mat because he can't walk because he's paralyzed. And they lower him down in front of Jesus. Right? Now, Jesus, you would think, right, he's, he's coming to be healed. He wants to be healed. And Jesus forgives. Now, we'll get into that forgiveness here in a second. But to really understand the the shocking and powerful nature of what Jesus did, you've got to understand uh, something about the Bible's view of of sickness and and the complexity of it and what this man was probably thinking as he's being lowered on the mat. You see, the Bible shows us that sin and sickness are much more complex than we think or imagined, right? Right? Uh, It it says that sin is an alien invader into this world that has broken everything that is ultimately the cause of all of our sicknesses, right? Now, uh, because of our sins, sometimes sickness can be a direct consequence of our sinful actions and desires. Uh, In in Exodus, there's a story about Miriam, which is Moses' sister, and Miriam opposes Moses, who is God's servant, and God curses her with leprosy. Her, her sickness is directly a result of her sin. Uh, Psalm 32, which we read earlier, the, the psalmist says that he had sinned and God's hand was heavy upon him. It was a weight on his soul. Right? But, but it's not always a direct result of, uh, sickness isn't always a result of sin, right? Uh, you have Job, who was a sinless sufferer, who in God's plan suffered even though he hadn't sinned. And then John 9, uh, the disciples, they, they, Jesus heals a man born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, well, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And, the, and Jesus says, neither. This happens so that the glory of God, the work of God might be displayed. So this man comes to Jesus and he doesn't have this dualistic approach to life that you've got the soul here and the body here and those two things are separate. He comes to Jesus believing that body and soul are connected and that when the body suffers, the soul suffers. And when the soul suffers, the body suffers. And so he comes to Jesus to find healing for both his body and his soul. And what does Jesus do? The first thing he does is he forgives this man's sins. That shows us that the priority, the priority, the necessity of spiritual healing in our lives, right? 
Jesus is showing us that there's a problem underneath our problems, right? There's a, beneath this man's spirit, his physical paralysis was a spiritual paralysis. Underneath this man's, and, and because of that, this man didn't just need a physical healing, he needed a spiritual healing. And 2,000 years later, <laughs> we have the same need. Right? The problem underneath all of our problems is that we need the healing of forgiveness. Right? We live in uh, one of the greatest countries in the history of the world with the most technological advancements in the history of the world. And yet, despite all of our technology, despite all of our wealth and affluence, uh, the death ratio in America is still one-to-one. For every person that's born, a person dies. And it's my job as a pastor to tell you that and to prepare you for death. It is, it is going to happen. It is going to come. It is a consequence of sin, right? Despite all of our counseling, all of our medicine, all our exercise, diet, money, education, all those wonderful things, we still suffer from anxiety, depression, uh, mental disorders, apathy, cynicism, discontentment, insomnia, addictions, and destructive behaviors. We've got everything you could want in the world, and we have the highest rates of those mental illnesses in the world. There's a problem underneath our problems. And despite all of our spirituality and religiosity, right, even in this room, we still struggle with self-righteousness and hypocrisy and besetting sins. All these surface symptoms show that there's a greater problem going on underneath the surface. A few years ago, I heard a story about a man named uh, Walter Lampett. And Walter Lampett, decades ago, was in a car accident. And he, he was in the car accident. He went to the hospital. They treated him for a, 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 you know, a hurt hip. And they released him. Well, 50 years later, his arm swelled up. And he got a fever and his arm hurt. So he went to the doctor to, um, to check it out. And they did an x-ray, and in his arm, they found a seven-inch turn signal from a Ford Thunderbird that had been lodged in his arm since the car wreck. And that, that, <laughs> that thing was going to kill him because it had infected his body. So you see how these surface, he had these surface symptoms, but underneath that surface symptom was a, a greater problem. We have these surface symptoms in our lives, these sicknesses, mental, physical, spiritual. Underneath that shows that there's a greater problem. There's a greater healing that needs to take place. And that's the healing of forgiveness. So the first thing that Jesus shows us is, is that we need forgiveness. And the second thing he shows us is where to find forgiveness, right? So Jesus heals this man. He says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And how do the scribes respond? They said, this man is blaspheming. We don't use the word blaspheme much, but to blaspheme means to, to take away somebody's honor, to take away their glory. Uh, to a Jew, this would, to blaspheme God would have meant to put yourself uh, equal with God. 
right? So, so why was Jesus blaspheming? What was he doing? Well, let me ask you this. If you were a first century Jew, where would you go to find forgiveness? You'd go to the temple, right? Let's say you committed a crime, like stealing somebody's donkey. You stole somebody's donkey. You would say, I- I've sinned. I've stolen this man's donkey. I need to go to the temple. I need to offer a sacrifice and find forgiveness. So you'd probably go to the temple. You'd buy a sacrifice. You would come in. You would present that sacrifice to the priest. You would lay your hand on that sacrifice to symbolize your sin going from you to the animal. Then the priest would take that sacrifice. They would kill it. They would sprinkle its blood on the altar and they would come back and they would pronounce you as forgiven. That's how you'd find forgiveness. So by Jesus saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus was saying, guess what? I'm the new temple. I'm the new place where you go to find forgiveness. And not only that, I'm the new priest. I'm the one to whom you bring the sacrifice and through whom you can find forgiveness. I'm the authority on forgiveness. I'm the expert on forgiveness, right? If you wanted to to know about uh, pharmaceuticals, you would go to our expert on pharmacy, which is Ricky Burgess. If you wanted to know about selling clothes, you'd go to our expert on selling clothes, which is Jay Stevenson. If you want to... Find out the expert in finance and accounting. You'd go to Mary and Dean Hatch. If you wanted to find out the expert on OSU football, you would come find me. (laughs) No. Yeah. If you want to find forgiveness, you go to Jesus, the authority, the expert on forgiveness. He's saying, I'm the new temple and I'm the new priest. But not only that, he's saying, I'm equal with God. Right? Jews knew that in Psalm 51, David said... When he had sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, David knew that he sinned against those people as well, but he knew that first and foremost, his sins were against God, right? So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I am God. When you sin, you sin against me. And I'm the only one who can forgive you. Now think about it this way. Let's say that you get into a, a car wreck, right? You get into a car wreck, you're parked at the stoplight, somebody comes up, they rear-end you, they hit you, it's clearly their fault. You get out, you guys talk about it, you're swapping insurance, and then one of the witnesses comes up, and the witness says, hey, hey, don't worry about it, I forgive you. You don't have to pay this debt, you don't have to pay for the car anymore. You would look at the witness and go, what are you, what are you talking about? That's not your car. You can't forgive this debt. They rear-ended me. They owe me the debt. Either I have to pay the debt to fix this car or they've got to pay the debt to fix the car, but you can't, pay the, but you can't just forgive the debt because the debt's not against you. When Jesus says, I forgive you, he's saying, I'm the one against whom all your debts are owed. Therefore, I'm the one who can forgive your debts. I'm God. Jesus is saying, I'm the new temple. I'm the new priest. He's saying, I'm God. He's also saying, I'm the sacrifice. Where's the man's sacrifice? (laughs) He comes to Jesus with nothing. 
He comes to Jesus paralyzed on the mat. He can't do anything. He can't even get to Jesus. His friends have to lower him down on a mat to Jesus. Yet Jesus forgives him without anything else. How could Jesus do that? Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us that not only is Jesus the new priest, not only is Jesus the new temple, it says that Jesus is the sacrifice. That the reason why he could forgive this man's sins without him bringing a sacrifice was because Jesus knew that he was going to go to the cross and become a sacrifice for this man. Jesus knew that this man was physically paralyzed, but that one day, someday, Jesus would become physically and spiritually paralyzed on the cross for this man's sins. Jesus knew that this man's friends brought him to Jesus for healing, And Jesus also knew that one day, someday, Jesus' friends were going to abandon him and betray him so that he could be our sacrifice for us on the cross. Jesus is the true and greater priest. He is the true and greater temple. He is the true and greater sacrifice. And he did all that so he could look at this man and you and I and say, sons, your sins are forgiven. And daughters... Your sins are forgiven. Healing this man only took a few words from Jesus, but it cost him his entire life. Uh, This question, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal the man, has perplexed scholars for thousands of years. And the reason why it's perplexed them is because there's really two answers. On the one hand, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. All you have to do is say it. There's, There's no objective proof whether you're forgiven or not. And it's harder to heal somebody. But on the other hand, it was infinitely harder for Jesus to tell this man, your sins are forgiven, than it was to heal him. Because for Jesus to forgive this man's sins was going to cost him much more than a few words. It was going to cost him his life. So what does this mean for us? This means that Jesus is the authority for forgiveness. He's the place where we go to find it. When we're confronted with our sin, he's the place where we go to find it. There, there are no other temples. See, we, we, we don't have temples, uh, like literal temples, but we create temples, right? We go to the office, and the office becomes a temple where we Uh, work so that we can create these sacrifices so that we can present them to God so that he will approve us. We uh, turn our homes into temples where we cook and we clean and we mother, we parent, we father, we do all these things to try to atone for our sins, to try to cover up for our feelings of inadequacy and insufficiency. Uh, We go to the gym, and we turn that into a temple, right? There, there's, there's something about our, our, our bodies that we think, if only I looked like that, if only I had that, and, and the gym becomes a place where we try to sculpt ourselves into something worthy of love and acceptance. And Jesus is saying that none of these other temples will save you. None of these other temples can provide the healing of forgiveness, 
He's saying none of your priests can provide the healing of forgiveness. We look to, to podcasts and coaches and financial advisors and bosses and, and, and all these different people to bring forgiveness. And Jesus is saying they can't do it. He said, you'll never find the healing of forgiveness through all your other gods, whether it's health and comfort, money, beauty, sex, none of these other things are going to bring the healing of forgiveness. Jesus even looks at our religiosity and our spirituality and he says, you can't use your spiritual disciplines to earn forgiveness. It won't happen. Uh, let me tell you what this looks like in my life. Uh, I value performance, I value results, I value getting things done, and so for me, the maximum way that I can be efficient and productive and get the results that I want for these grand visions that I have in my head is through routines and habits that don't get interrupted by ice storms. And so this week, guess what happened? It all got interrupted by an ice storm. It happens a couple times a year, right? The whole world in the state of Oklahoma shuts down because of, uh, you know, a quarter inch of ice and all the northerners roll their eyes as all of us Okies just sit inside our house all week long. So I get frustrated and anxious because now I can't uh, satisfy my gods. Now I can't get to the office on time. I can't get my, my, my duties done, my responsibilities done. I can't get my gods, right? And so what do I do? I take that out on my wife and kids. So this week I made a critical, uh, angry comment to my wife. And what do I do after that? I got to go to the office. I got to get my sermon done. <laughs> so I go to the office. I sit down. I'm, 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 I'm reading. You know, I, I usually, you know, I try to read a psalm a morning and then I work on my sermon prep. And so I'm reading my psalm. And I just so happened that I was reading Psalm 32 about confessing your sin. And uh, the Lord was showing me my sinfulness. He was showing me my guilt. He's working me into this, this posture of, of needing repentance. And what was the first thought that came to my mind? Not man, I need to confess my sins to Jesus. It was, man, I need to work on this sermon. <laughs> so I turned and started working on my sermon. What was I doing? I was using my religiosity to keep me away from Jesus. I'm no better than the scribes and the Pharisees here in this passage. How many of us are guilty of using our religiosity to actually keep us from finding forgiveness in Jesus? Jesus saying, there is no other temple there is no other priest. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other God. It is me. I am the authority on forgiveness. And when you find the deepest problems in your heart, you come to me and I will forgive you. And when he forgives you, all those sacrifices of atonement that you make at the gym or in your home or in your office, all those sacrifices are no longer about atonement. They're about thanksgiving. Like Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. So Jesus shows us that we need forgiveness. Jesus shows us where we find forgiveness. And lastly, Jesus shows us how we receive forgiveness. We receive forgiveness by grace through faith in him. I love the faith of this man and his friends, Right? He doesn't say anything. He, he's laying on a mat. He is paralyzed, right? He literally can do nothing. 
Yet Jesus saw in his heart something, a spark, a flame of faith that was demonstrated by his desire to get to Jesus. By this desire, uh, you know, to, this, their willingness to tear a hole through the roof to get to Jesus. And to me, this is really, really encouraging because if you're out there and you're struggling and all you've got is a little flicker of faith, Jesus says, that's enough. That's enough. If all you got today was 0.5% and that, zero, that 0.5% brought you to worship today, Jesus sees your faith. He sees it. He says, take heart, son. Your sin is forgiven. He says, take heart, daughter. Your sin is forgiven. And you know what's even more gracious than that? When you find Jesus, you realize that he was looking for you all along. When you tear a, roof through, when you tear a hole through the roof, you realize that God tore a hole in the roof to come and find you. When you choose God, you realize that long before you chose God, he chose you. Paul says the whole thing is a gift. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. All salvation is a gracious gift of God. We're saved, we receive forgiveness by grace through faith. And we receive forgiveness through faithful friendships. <laughs> Think about it. I love this passage. It says that Jesus saw their faith, not just the man's. It's there. It's plural. He was surrounded by a community of faithful and faith-filled friends that brought him to Jesus. Think about how much sacrifice that took. Time, energy. They were willing to sacrifice themselves for their friend. They saw Jesus as his only hope and their only hope. And so they brought him to Jesus so that he could be healed. You see, uh, because we're Oklahomans and we're strong, red-blooded American Oklahomans and we do things ourselves, we think that I'm going to find Jesus all by myself. Well, guess what? There's no private solutions to private problems. You are not going to find Jesus by yourself. You can't find Jesus alone. You find him in a faithful community of believers that want to carry you to Jesus. Guess what? We're all spiritually paralyzed. We need people who are going to bring us to Jesus. Do you have people in your life that are going to bring you to Jesus? Are we a community of people that bring each other to Jesus? Right? This is how you come to faith in Christ, is through a community of believers. I heard a story this week about uh, two men, Wilbur and Ernie. And Wilbur was a believer, and Ernie wasn't. And Wilbur asked Ernie to come to church every Sunday for a year, 52 Sundays. And every Sunday, Ernie said no. Or every week, Ernie said no. And finally, on the 53rd week, Ernie said, okay, I'll finally go. So he goes to church, and after church, he comes home, or he goes to, he goes to lunch with Wilbur afterwards, and they go to Wilbur's home, and, and Ernie walks to the door, and Wilbur's wife says, oh, you must be Ernie. And Ernie says, well, how did you know that I was Ernie? And she says, well, because every week, my husband would invite you to church, and you would say no, he would come home, and he wouldn't eat his dinner, 
he would go upstairs and pray for you, and he would tell me to pray for you because we wanted you to come to church. So I've been praying that you would either come to church or you would move so my husband would eat his dinner. And Ernie became a Christian out of that friendship. If you're here this morning, we want to be that faithful, spirit-filled community that brings you to Jesus. And who is there in your life that you can serve that role for? Who can you pray into the kingdom? Who can you invite to church? Who can you invite to Bible study? Who can you invite over to watch a, a football game or to listen to an album? Who can you pray for? That's how we come into the kingdom, and that's how we grow in the kingdom. Uh, I was talking to a friend recently who was struggling with some of the same struggles that I have. Uh, his, his work was interfering with his, his family life, and he was sort of repeating the same patterns over and over again. And he sat down with one of his friends, and his friend looked him, you know, he was explaining what was going on, and his friend looked him in the eye, and he said, you know what, you do this to yourself and to your wife and your kids every year at the same time. Don't blame your wife. She's not the biggest problem in your marriage. You are. You need to repent and forgive forgiveness. And he did. But it took his friend to bring him to Jesus so that he could see it. We receive Jesus by grace through faith, but we receive Jesus in a community of believers. We receive forgiveness in a community of believers, and we receive it uh, through the church. The church ought to be a place where people find forgiveness, where they find Jesus, right? After all, if you want to find forgiveness, where do you go? You go to Jesus. If you want to find Jesus' body, where do you go? You go to the church. That's where his spirit dwells. That's where forgiveness can be found. And as a body, we want to be a place that helps you understand that you forgot, you find grace and forgiveness through Jesus. And one of the ways the church has historically done that is by in their worship services, including a time of confession of sin and assurance of pardon. It's part of the normal liturgy of the church. Sometimes we do it here very implicitly and you don't even notice it. Well, this morning, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to do it very explicitly. So what I want to do now is I want to take a few moments to have a confession of sin as a body. We're going to, we're going to, this is going to make us real uncomfortable. Okay. It's all right. I love awkwardness. I hope you do too. We just want to embrace it. Okay. I want to lead you through a very short corporate confession of sin that we're going to recite together. I know. And then I'm going to provide you with a few moments of silence for you to confess your own sins silently and privately. And then I'll pray a confession of sin for us. And then I'll give you an assurance of pardon from God's word. Okay? The confession of sin is here on the board. It's very simple. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So let's recite that together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now let's go to the Lord and confess our sins silently and privately. Father, we thank you so much. You've done everything necessary to rescue us from our sin, to free us from our spiritual paralysis, and to give us spiritual freedom.
You lived the life that we couldn't live. You died the death that we deserve to die. And you rose from the grave so that we could be freed from the shame and guilt of sin. So we confess our sins, Lord, and we throw ourselves on Jesus. And we ask you to forgive us in the name of Jesus. We ask you to forgive us for the sins that we've committed and for the sins that we have, that we, uh, the things, we ask, you to, we ask you to forgive us for the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone. We ask you to forgive us for not loving our friends and our family members and our neighbors as we ought. We ask you to forgive us for trying to save ourselves through our own temples, our own sacrifices, and through other priests. We ask you to forgive us for having false gods that we look to to save us. We thank you for saving us through Jesus, and we pray that you would free us from that guilt and help us experience the power of salvation today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.